Hello, you're listening to Wait, How Do You Spell That? A Rare Disease Podcast. My name is Colby, and I'm the content manager here at Patientworthy. And today we're going to be discussing tuberous sclerosis complex, also known as TSC. It's a rare genetic disorder that causes tumors to form in various organs of the body, and it affects around one in every 6,000 newborns. And to help our discussion today, we've got a very special guest. Kari Rosbeck is the president and CEO of the TSC Alliance, a nonprofit that supports awareness, research, and advocacy, among many other things, for the TSC community. Kari, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. And we're very glad to have you on today. I know you've got a lot of great information about TSC and what your organization is doing to help support the community. To start with, uh, can you give us an overview of tuberous sclerosis complex for people who may not be familiar with the condition? I absolutely can. And you did a great job in the introduction because (laughs) TSC is really a complicated disease. Um, It's caused by a mutation in one of the two genes that actually control cell growth and proliferation. So as you mentioned, tumors can grow in different organs throughout the body. So the brain, heart, kidney, liver, lung, skin, uh, and it can impair certain function in those organs. So when you think about the brain, for instance, if you have cellular dysfunction, this could lead to epilepsy. In fact, TSC is a leading genetic cause of epilepsy. It also has a strong correlation to autism. So about 50% of individuals with TSC will develop autism. From our really extensive research, TSC and autism in TSC most looks like autism in the general public. If you look at brain scans, you look at ADOS scores, they're almost identical with those that have autism in the general public. As you mentioned, one in 6,000 live births are affected by TSC. Um, or about two babies born each day in the United States will have TSC, 50,000 Americans and more than a million people worldwide. Uh, And one thing to keep in mind, um, like many rare diseases, no two people are impacted in exactly the same way, not even identical twins. Mm -hmm. And it's variable. Some people uh, have very severe manifestations of the disease, while others can live somewhat normal lives. We also know that one of the things that really impacts individuals, almost everybody living with TSC, are TSC-associated neuropsychiatric disorders. This is a real umbrella term that describes behavioral challenges, executive functioning, learning difficulties in school, neuropsychiatric pieces, autism. Uh, And we put it under this term of TAN, again, TSC-associated neuropsychiatric disorders, so that we can begin to define it and begin to create educational materials around it and research into TAN that will help improve the quality of life for everyone. So being a genetic condition, what does the road to diagnosis typically look like for people who have TSC? So the road to diagnosis for TSC for most people begins in early, early, early childhood. So right now people are either diagnosed in utero because of heart tumors called rhabdomyomas, You can see it on a normal ultrasound in about 20 weeks. So that's one way folks are diagnosed. The second way is when infants begin having seizures and primarily infantile spasms. Infantile spasms are a catastrophic 
type of seizure that sends an electrical current through a developing brain. They happen in clusters, sometimes hundreds of times a day, and can really impact intellectual disability later in life. So it's really important to recognize those seizures and get them under control. And then the other way that people are diagnosed is in adulthood. So women that develop lymphangiomyomatosis in the lungs around childbearing age or people who develop tumors in the kidneys. And those are really the points at which people have been diagnosed. And one other thing, um, and I know some other guests on your show have talked about this, children being diagnosed and then parents subsequently being diagnosed because maybe they had more mild manifestations Mm -hmm. and their diagnosis was missed. Mm -hmm. So those are really the diagnosis points. I wanted to focus on one particular aspect of this condition that you mentioned earlier. I think many people are probably familiar with tumors specifically because they know people who have had cancer. They're they're probably aware of the pattern in that condition, you know, growth forms in a certain part of the body and then potentially metastasizes to another organ system. But the tumors found in TSC are not necessarily cancerous. Is that correct? That's correct. The tumors in TSC are generally non-malignant, but We don't use the term benign because of the impact that they have on the organ system. For instance, as we mentioned in the brain, tumors or tubers can lead to epilepsy in the kidneys. They can shut down kidney function, Um, but they are uh, tend to be non-malignant. There are some cases uh, in the kidneys uh, where the tumors, there are renal cell carcinoma, but that is extremely rare. And being a genetic condition, I know there is no cure for TSC at the moment, though research has progressed quite a bit in that area, which I'm sure we'll discuss shortly. Uh, But what are the current treatment options for TSC? We feel like we're very fortunate in TSC and that we actually do have FDA approved treatments. The first uh, was everolimus or an mTOR inhibitor that actually works on the underlying disease. So it's disease modifying. It actually helps to regulate that cell growth and proliferation. So it shrinks the tumors, certain types of tumors in the brain and kidneys. And it's actually also been approved as adjunct therapy for epilepsy because it is a disease modifying treatment. Um, In lymphangiolyomyomatosis, there is an FDA approved drug called rapamycin uh, that is approved specifically for lung involvement. And then last year, we were very fortunate that Epidiolex, which is the first cannabinoid FDA-approved therapy, Epidiolex, was approved to treat seizures specific to TSC. So those are the FDA-approved treatments. I mentioned infantile spasms earlier, and there is a drug that's very effective in TSC for infantile spasms, and that is Vigabitrin. For some of our infants, they can control those seizures after the first dose. It's very effective. Oh, wow. So those are some very specific treatments. Now, other than that, there are treatments that are used for epilepsy that are also used for epilepsy and TSC. Um, For the kidneys, if you're not using everolimus, um, there are different treatment options that are available. Uh, But really in terms of medication, those those are the treatments for TSC. So for parents who have a child with a rare condition, you know, that often adds a a layer of complication or new things they have to learn on top of just being a new parent. 
you know, and having a new child. What advice do you have for a parent whose child is newly diagnosed with TSC? First of all, please call the TSC Alliance at 800-225-6872. We have two support navigators on staff that are there to answer your questions, get you to the right clinical care, really help guide you through the process. I'd also encourage them to visit our website because we have a section for newly diagnosed individuals. And as of September 1st, we're going to be launching a TSC navigator, which really is a proactive care management system that walks people through the steps of what they need to do when they're newly diagnosed. And then the third thing I would say is connect to our community. You can do that by calling the TSC Alliance and we'll make those connections for you or by going to social media, which is a beautiful thing for our community to connect immediately, no matter what time of day. So at the TSC Alliance, we have a discussion group that's private on Facebook. We have a group on Inspire, and we also have a community that communicates through Instagram. And that's just been a real game changer for the TSC community, as it has been for many rare diseases, just to be able to connect to those who've walked that journey. We also have a program called TSC Connect, um, which are volunteers that have been trained to offer peer-to-peer support. And then we also have 36 volunteer branches of the TSC Alliance across the country. So there are local volunteers in your community that can be there to offer support and information. Uh, Now, do you have any advice for friends and family? Uh, How can they help support someone with this condition? So we have a letter on our website about how families can support those with TSC. So the number one thing is just be there for your family or friend. It's really important that they feel emotionally supported, um, that you can help them get through the early days of diagnosis. The second thing is become an advocate, get involved in our volunteer branches, educate yourself by going to educational meetings or webinars. You can also get involved in our government advocacy. Every year we go to Capitol Hill, uh, we march for appropriations to the TSC research program at the Department of Defense. That is a great way to get involved and to feel like you're making a true difference. And then we have walks across the country on one giant weekend where we hold this massive fundraiser that really helps build the momentum and raise awareness and funds to not only support our community programs, but also TSC research. I'd like to turn to the TSC Alliance itself, actually. Uh, Can you give us a little background about the organization and what it's doing to support the TSC community? So first of all, we just changed our name on May 16th of this year. We were formerly known as the Tuberous Sclerosis Alliance and now obviously the TSC Alliance. And we did that to better align the name of the organization with the name of the disease and not to be confused with Tourette syndrome or Turner syndrome that also use the acronyms of TS. And our new visual identity was really informed by engaging with our community. So our new logo, which is beautiful, has these three interlocking circles that really represent the community's journey and how we come together. And the colors represent the manifestations of the disease most experienced 
purple for epilepsy, orange for kidney disease, blue for autism. So the TSC Alliance is an internationally recognized nonprofit that does everything it takes to improve the lives of those living with TSC. We were founded in 1974 by four moms from Southern California. And at that time, they're really were no programs for TSC and people really were living in silos. They really had this beautiful vision for how to bring the community together. And the pillars of support that they created then are the ones that we stick to today. So we develop programs, support services, and research information for anybody impacted by the disease. We fund and we drive research and we create and implement both public and professional education programs that really heighten awareness of the disease, which can lead to quicker diagnosis and more appropriate treatment and better quality of life. And I also wanted to congratulate you. You've been with the TSC Alliance for 20 years now. Is that right? That is correct. I just yeah. celebrated my 20th anniversary. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're recording this in June, which, which is your anniversary month. Again, congratulations. That's a major milestone. Uh, I know during your time with the organization, one area where it has made a big push is in regards to supporting TSC research. Can you talk about how the TSC Alliance has grown into this role and why it's so important? We really felt it was important to take an active role in research. One of the things we did in the early 2000s that I mentioned, of course, was government advocacy and the really important role that individuals that are impacted can play in driving research. So the TSC research program at the Department of Defense and our annual advocacy efforts really important. Over the years, more than 97 million has been appropriated for TSC research, which has been incredible. Now that doesn't come to the TS Alliance, but it is made available to our researchers and has truly moved the needle in terms of discoveries of underlying biology of TSC that's led to our approved drugs today. At the TS Alliance, we've also spent some time developing TSC clinics, comprehensive care clinics where individuals can go across the country to receive care. When I first started, I think there were eight comprehensive care clinics. Today, there are 65. And of those, 13 are centers of excellence, which is really important. We built a research platform that really moves drug discovery across the pipeline and encourages industry to really look at the TSC Alliance as an easy place to work with that helps de-risk drug development. So if you think of a a pipeline. We start with hypothesis generation. And what we've done since 1984 is offer research grants to early career professionals, but also to those that have really innovative ideas that are going to push new treatments forward. We also, under innovative research, are holding workshops to really look at emerging issues in TSC and then followed up immediately with funding opportunities. So one of the first issues that we're tackling with innovative workshops is newborn screening. And I'll get to that and the why we're doing that in just a moment. The second thing that we do to de-risk drug development is we have a preclinical consortium. So a group of academic investigators and industry that have come together the TSC Alliance has licensed mouse models, both for tumor growth and epilepsy, to really try new compounds or to make available to industry to come in, join the consortium, 
and test compounds that they want to see the effectiveness in TSC. And because we've already negotiated the mouse licenses, they don't have to spend months either building their R&D or negotiating IP. They can come in and run those tests confidentially if they'd like. They just need to pay for the cost of the testing. On the other end of the spectrum, when we think about clinical trials, we've established a clinical research consortium. So of those 65 TSC clinics, we have a subset of five that came together to form the consortium and really looking at where they could really make a dent in clinical outcomes for those with TSC. We started with an early biomarker study of newborns with TSC and could we tell from an EEG, which were vulnerable to go on to develop epilepsy. We found a biomarker study and the clinical research consortium actually have just completed enrollment for the first preventative clinical trial for epilepsy in the United States. And the endpoint is really to improve cognitive outcomes or to change the course of TSC for those newborns. And so when we think about newborn screening, as I mentioned in innovative research, you have to have an intervention in order to apply to be on the newborn screening panel. But you also have to have an assay to know which babies have TSC before the onset of seizures. And so that's what we're trying to do with both of those programs. The Clinical Research Consortium is also working on an autism biomarker study, and we expect the results from that to be published later this year. And we're really excited about that because if we can identify a biomarker for autism, that will lead to preventative trials or interventional trials for autism and TSC. And remember, I said that autism in TSC most looks like autism in the general public. So perhaps there'll be breakthroughs in biomarkers for autism in the general public. And then when we think about real world experience and, and what really influences the areas that we should look at in TSC, we have a natural history database that we started in 2006, and we have over 2,300 participants in the natural history database. That is now linked to a biosample repository that we built in 2014 with over 1,700 biosamples so that we can understand how TSC progresses throughout a lifetime and why TSC is different person to person. Ultimately, we'd like to develop personalized medicine or medicine that we know is going to work in a subset of individuals with TSC. Now, I just explained a whole huge research platform that has taken 37 years to build. The one thing that we wanted to make sure is that this program would be sustainable. So we built it slowly over time and we built it to be scalable. So in a year we're having a great fundraising year, we can do more or scale it up. And a year that might be challenging, like with COVID, we could scale back a little bit, but not sacrifice moving TSC research forward. You spoke to one of our writers earlier this year for an article about how the TSC Alliance, thanks to this robust research network that it has helped to create, was able to maintain some momentum during the COVID-19 pandemic, as you just mentioned. Um, as anyone in the rare disease community is probably aware of, the pandemic has affected not only treatments such as doctor availability and hospital visits, but also siphoned away research efforts as the world kind of had to pivot to face this crisis. Uh, this hit the rare disease community especially hard, as we've heard from some of our previous guests. 
Uh, can you tell us about how the TSC Research Network managed to maintain its momentum over the course of the pandemic and some of the lessons you've learned moving forward? If you look at our innovative uh, research, I talked a little about the workshop that we had about newborn screening. Well, we couldn't have it in person. We moved it all virtually and we used this platform called Power Noodle to really gain consensus on what is the best research to move forward. So that was one pivot. Obviously that saved on costs. If your people aren't traveling into a meeting and you're not serving food, for instance. For our research grants, we knew that researchers weren't in their labs necessarily necessarily, but it was really important to keep their salaries, to keep them employed, allow them to analyze the data that they'd already been generating. And so we maintain the salaries, but we cut back on the lab expenses. In terms of the preclinical consortium, we just cut back on the number of preclinical testing that we did, but then made available some of the mouse models that we had been um, forming a colony for. And offered those to researchers that might be able to utilize them. Um, in terms of clinical trials, clinical trials were actually delayed. And so we just delayed a payment of, for a clinical trial that we were gonna start earlier in the year. And then there was a clinical trial for a behavioral intervention that was being done that had to move from in-person to virtual. And we actually paid for some of the materials that they needed for those behavioral interventions and sent them out to people's homes so that they could participate in the clinical trial virtually. And then in terms of the biosamples, we did need to just cut back a little bit on our biosample collection. We had actually planned to do a mobile phlebotomy collection through a partnership with Flebotech. And obviously people were very careful about who they were letting in their homes or they were going to clinics. And so when people began to be more comfortable because we had this mobile phlebotomy, we were actually able to send one person masked and into somebody's home uh, versus them having to go into a hospital to give a biosample. Uh, and then with the natural history database, actually that scaled up during the pandemic because our nursing staff or our clinical staff that generally um, would be in clinic worked virtually and they were able to upload more of the medical records into the natural history database. Sounds like, uh, I think as many of us discovered over the previous year, the internet was key to all of this. You were able to use that in a way that maybe you hadn't before, but it seems to have worked out pretty well. Absolutely. We were, <laughs> we were very fortunate, but you know, early in the pandemic in March before people knew what was going to happen because I've been at the TSC Alliance for quite a while. I recognize the pattern, a little bit of the pattern of panic that happened during the great recession in 2008. So our team immediately met mid-March, started looking at where could we make cuts if we needed to that would have the least effect, moderate impact, or severe impact. And we started just to trim back a little bit early on so that we, by June, we weren't stuck. Like, you know, some organizations where they had to make severe staff cuts, we began doing it very early on and looking at how to reformat how we were delivering programs. And so we were impacted for sure. But the first thing we did was to seek out what our community needed what information they needed, and that became our primary point. 
And then we, like many organizations, retooled how we were going to do fundraising. Um, but because of that very early planning, I think we were not only able to survive, but found a way to thrive during the pandemic. And actually, because of having a virtual platform, reached even more people that were in need. I'd like to talk for a moment again about some of the events you have coming up this year. Uh, if someone wants to get involved, what are some of the ways they can participate? Oh, thank you so much for asking that. So we have our wonderful 20th year of Comedy for a Cure, which is our Hollywood fundraiser, which will be hybrid. So that will be half virtual, half in person this year. It generally takes place in Hollywood. We wanna save our big 20th anniversary for next year. So we're calling this 19.5. So we definitely need volunteers to help us with our live and silent auction and help us gather items for that. Uh, to help us, we, we have a game night that goes along with that event. So we definitely need volunteers to help with that. Uh, the event is October 17th, but also next spring when we have our live event on April 3rd. Um, so if anybody wants to get involved in that event, it is so wonderful. We have a comedian committee led by Jim O'Hare of Parks and Rec, who has been a constant supporter of ours. We have a comedian committee made up of Mo Collins and Alex Scooby, Kate Flannery from the office. Craig Shoemaker, Wendy Liebman, these folks that have been with us for so long and really care about us. And this event, you'll just have a blast. Um, the other thing that's coming up in December is Infantile Spasms Awareness Week. So helping us spread the word about infantile spasms, why it's important to recognize this catastrophic type of epilepsy so we can save babies, not only with TSC, but other root causes of infantile spasms. For those researchers and, and clinicians that might be listening later this year, we have an international research conference at the end of October. Uh, we welcome you to participate, uh, bring your ideas, come collaborate with us. We're always looking to move that forward. Uh, we are also doing the International Research Conference in partnership with the LAM Foundation. And um, our diseases come from mutations in the same genes. So we often partner together collaboratively. Uh, Infantile Spasms Awareness Week is a collaboration, for instance, of the Infantile Spasms Action Network, over 30 organizations that work together to raise awareness. And so a lot of what we do, as you've heard, is very collaborative in nature because we believe that better amplifies our voices for raising awareness or moving research forward. So those are a couple of the things that we have coming up this year. And if someone wants to learn more about tuberous sclerosis complex, the TSC Alliance or some of the upcoming events, where can they do that? You can go to our website at tscalliance.org, or you can find us on any of our social media channels um, at TSC Alliance. So that would be Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Well, Kari, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show today. We really appreciate having you on to talk about this condition and some of the work that the TSC Alliance has been doing to help support the community. I just want to thank the TSC community, our team, and our board for helping guide us through a really turbulent time and come out the other end, really having a more engaged community and a better aligned organization. It's been quite a learning process and we are deeply grateful for the support of all of our community members and all of our partners and collaborators. 
Thank you so much for having me and for this very important podcast that shines light on rare diseases. And again, if you'd like to learn more about tuberous sclerosis complex and the TSC Alliance, you can do so by visiting www.tscalliance.org. We'll also leave a link to their website in the show notes so that you can check out some of their upcoming events. And if you'd like to keep up with the latest in rare disease news, visit www.patientworthy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching for patientworthy on those platforms. A big shout out to listeners who have been leaving reviews of the show on their favorite podcasting apps. It might seem like a small thing, but it really does go a long way toward helping us out. And if you have any questions about the show, or if you'd like to suggest an idea for a future show, you can get in touch with me at colby at patientworthy.com. And as always, thank you for listening. 